Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Johnny, how are you, mate? Good, buddy. Good. First off, mate, mega congrats on your uh, Everest Summit. I was following a, a fellow former Royal Marine colleague of mine on his attempt and um, got all, way, all the way up to the top camp. And um, he'd had a stomach bug the whole time and he just had to call it. Um, two of his team went up and only one of them come back down. So it's a serious old business, isn't it? That's it. I know it gets a lot of negative media these days, but there's no soft people getting to the top. Or if there are, I certainly never saw them. It's it's tougher. Just because you see all these famous photographs of lots of people and stuff up there now, people assume that like you, you read about, oh, it's just a play thing for the rich and all this, but it's not. It's brutal. It's really brutal still. Is it strange seeing all those bodies up there? Um, yeah, it's strange, of course. And when it, you know, there's those, there's some famous ones that have been there for a while, and, and that kind of feels a bit more like you've read about it in books or watched about, heard about them in documentaries. And it's still tough because it's someone's brother or father, but it, it, that feels quite distant. But like, for example, there was a Nepali guy who who died um, on the day that I summited and he had run out of oxygen and and suffocated and he was just hanging off the rope. And that just happened a few hours earlier. And that is like infinitely more harrowing than than like a famous body from 20 years ago, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's tough. I guess, you know, I would like to think we all know the risks when we do this stuff, but it's still brutal because you're celebrating and your family's proud of you and all this. And it's one of the biggest days of your life. And for some family, it's the worst day of their life. They've lost their, their brother or their son or, you know what I mean? So it's tough, but I, I think I'm sure that that guy knew what he was signing up for too. It was sad. Yes. I must say it puts a different angle on it. Once you become a parent yeah. simply because statistically, I don't know what the current statistic is, but it used to be for every 10 people that, got up only nine people made it back down and that that's you got to consider that as a parent you know this this year there was about 450 permits and like 100 quit 100 people quit or 25 percent or so quit before you're even a, a month in you know people some people are unprepared this this whole thing with rich people rich people's play thing they never make it high up the mountain those kind of people you know they're they're long gone after they see it they're like oh shit this is serious people are dying so a lot of people quit early on so i think out of the 450 maybe 200 or 250 summits or something like that um and 15 died so that's still a really brutal uh yeah even with all the health and safety and the quality oxygen and the quality gear it's still not a great number is it no it's not and do you think fitness comes into it I mean, obviously, you have to have a base fitness to even consider that sort of thing. But they do say that high altitude sickness can, you know, it can affect anybody. Yeah, they do say that. It's quite generous. It can affect anyone, of course, but fitness is massive. I, I feel like I, I trained so hard for years, actually. Um, and like I've beasted myself every morning, running 50K every morning up this mountain beside my house here in Thailand. And everyone should be capable of running like an ultramarathon, for example. If you're going to do bloody Everest, you should be able to run 100K or 100 miles. You know what I mean? You should be in the best shape of your life. Fitness certainly plays a part. I saw some people who were wrecked on that mountain, like just people are just collapsing. I think that should make the um, criteria to get your permit granted harder. Like I went with a really good operator called Furtenbach Adventures. They're a like quite expensive West European, Austrian guy who owns it. And... Um, they're really strict about who they accept. I was terrified when I applied to go with them in case they turned me down because they're so successful. And I was like, God, I really want to get with these guys. Whereas a lot of the local operators will just take the 40 grand from some person who's barely been on a mountain before. I've got a really sad story. I met, I met an Indian lady who's 59. I was going just at the bottom of the Kumbu Icefall. We were just staying active while the weather was bad. And, and I bumped into her. And she had a photograph of herself on her helmet, like printed out on a printer and sellotape to the front. So I stopped and talked to her. I was like, oh, congratulations for 
getting to Everest Base Camp, it's because uh, the Kumbu Ice Falls near the base camp, right? So we hadn't gone further than that yet, or she hadn't. We had done one rotation. And I started speaking to her because she was like a, like a kind of older lady, a bit overweight Indian lady. And I was like, well done, wow, it's amazing you've made it to base camp. She's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm here to climb the mountain. And I was like, oh, okay. And then she said, read my helmet. And it said, pacemaker. And, she's, and I was like, what's that? And she's like, oh, I want to be the first person with a pacemaker to make it to the summit of Everest. And this is like an overweight 59-year-old woman who you wouldn't like who wouldn't be able to run a 5K. You know what I mean? Mm. And I was like, wow, okay. And the and the two shirts, she had hired two Sherpa. She was obviously very wealthy. Um and I was looking at the Sherpa like, wow, really? Are you guys going to take this lady up? And then I went back to to our own base camp, like my operator's base camp to have dinner that night. And I was telling everyone like, look guys, I saw this lady who did really well to get to base camp but like that should be the end of her trip like it was pretty mad but she's apparently and explained the story that i just told you got to you here and then last week i found out she died yeah i mean that's the reality it's funny you just reminded me um i did a marathon disablers last month oh nice i've done that myself yeah well, well you know yeah i'm, I'm not gonna uh, what year did you do it 2019 okay so I asked that specifically because 2021 was a particularly bad, tough year for it. <laughs> I, I, I remember reading about it. You can see my medal there. You see the one with the red? That's the Martin Desalvo one. You're the same one, I'm sure. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah similar, <laughs> similar. Yeah, I heard it was like a really brutal sand dune section. We were the, we also had a really, we had their, first, their longest sand dune section, but I think you guys had the hottest section, the hottest on record, which is obviously horrific. Yeah. 52 degrees. Um, I mean, you do sign up to do a desert in the Sahara. So, I mean, anyone listening is probably not too sympathetic for, for either of us. You get, you get what you pay for, don't you? I'm just really bad at judging all these kind of things. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll enter anything and I, I'm never going to give up. You know, so I always kind of know, yeah, exactly. although, although I will be honest, this was brutal. And there were times where if I didn't get a shift on, I would have been, you know, I was, you've only got a certain cutoff time. You don't want to leave it too long in those, uh, you know, when you get your water and that sort of thing. But the the very first night after we were running, I just ha happened to be stood outside um, our Bedouin tent. I'm looking at a chap as he died. He had a seizure. And the next thing you know, you know, everyone starts screaming and the medics come rushing over and, they were screaming for, I think it was Medazolan to, um, you know, to stop him seizuring. But, but, but then the next thing, the medics just jumping on his chest. So he'd obviously stopped, his heart had stopped. Fortunately, they got him alive again. And they've always got two choppers on hand there that they just sort of attached to the race. I don't know how they fund them because it must be bloody expensive to have a chopper, two choppers for 11 days. You do stand there and you think, bloody hell, that's someone's partner or, or dad or or you know or son and they don't know he's got and it, yeah it does it does get you thinking hey um you just did it there recently right april yeah. right yeah me, I had a scottish mate he used to be an alcoholic and he was big in his run and he was there as well actually but he and he dropped out on day two with dehydration and he's a bit of a beast as well well that was the thing i was going to come on to is in in the morning in the mornings you get this big queue of people with their backpacks and I thought they knew something I didn't know, you know, like, like there's free beer over there or something. <laughs> and then the guy in my tent went, no, Chris, they've all dropped out. I'm like, what? Yeah. what why? Would they, but they can still walk, That's you know, right. to, uh, but but this is the thing. And and a couple of the guys that, that were in my tent didn't come back from the second or they came back from the second day, but they're like, nah, that's 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 it. It is bizarre situation, you know. But you know what I think, Chris? I think with things like Everest and Marathon de Sable, I feel like they're so famous that people, and also they're quite popular, like lots of people do it, relatively lots. I mean, not in the, in the grand scheme of 7 billion people, not lots do it. But it seems popular because you see it in the media every year, April, a similar time of year as well, MDS and, and Everest. And it makes people who haven't necessarily cut their teeth on hardcore stuff before sit at home and think, I'm going to fucking do that. I'm going to do the MDS. I'm going to climb Everest. Like, I'm going to be a hero. And absolutely anyone can do these things. For sure they can. But you've got to 
you've got to learn to suffer first. That mm-hmm. can't be the first time you suffer. Can't be doing one of these epic challenges. You need to lead up to it. Like, like as I say, doing like a hundred k. You can do it yourself. You can put your sneakers on and go and do that tomorrow. That'll prepare your like as phys- physically, of course, too. But mentally, when the, when you get those dark times and you're like, oh god, what am I doing here? I hate myself. I'm crying. Why have I signed up for this? And then you come out the other side and you do that time and time again. And then eventually, when you do something like the MDS or Everest, you know you'll get through it. But it should, that shouldn't be your first experience of suffering, something that you can bloody die in, you know? Yeah, I only did 10 weeks training because I had a, a, I was actually waiting for a spinal op and it, it managed to just get better towards the end of what was a year off running, really. And so I thought, right, 10 weeks, what can I do? Well, first of all, lose a stone in weight. Because well, it's one less stone you have to carry around, doesn't it? Exactly. You know that straight away. A lot of people look at me and go, "What? Did you want to look good in the desert or something?" I'm like, "No, it's not nothing to do with that." Second thing, I hired, uh, hired, uh, book some sunbeds so That's that I'm not, you know, um, I'm not having to worry about like you know sun cream and getting burned and all that sort of um, thing. The third thing I did because I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a sauna in the garden is I just tried to spend as, as long as I could in there. It's quite brutal sauna heat, but I got a step-up box in there and I would just spend an hour, hour and a half if I could, just doing step-ups. At sort of, you know, And I was doing step-ups at some point at, at like 50 degrees going, well, it's never going to get that hot in the desert. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really doing well here. And, you know, I could only do an hour, hour and a half. And then I was like, right, screw that. But at least it won't be 50. You know, it's going to be like 30. <laughs> it was those small things uh, combined with getting out. I only ran like, like 23 milers. Uh, I did a couple of 10 milers. I tried to do a 19 miler and I, I just ended up. <laughs> it was, it was too too painful when I called my girlfriend to come and pick me up. Could I just talk about uh, money if you don't want how it's not cheap to get up Everest. How how does somebody like yourself um, steal that money? It's not cheap. And let me just before I get into that, how I found out the the bloody South Pole and Vincent where I'm going to in December to finish the seven summits, that's even more expensive. That's bloody 90 grand US (laughs) killing me. Everest is about forty-five fifty US for a local operator and kind of sixty-five seventy if you want a Western operator. So yeah, it's wow. bloody expensive. Um yeah, well, you know, like when I when I'm on my blog, like I'm a blogger by trade and when I write stuff or if the especially if the American media ever pick my story up, which happens now and again, I just get a load of feedback being like, Rich white guy with his dad's credit card here we go and i'm like god and my upbringing is very different to that i come from a single parent single mother family like my father was in prison we were in a battered woman's home we ended up having to flee the south of ireland change our names move to the north like very turbulent childhood and then we were on the dole on welfare for 10 years living off 45 quid a week and um I was just always, I just grew up poor, like as poor as you can be in, in, in Ireland. And um, I just remember feeling very restricted. We could never, we never went on holiday or any of that sort of stuff until I was like 14, 15, 16. I never went on an airplane until I was like 14 or 15. Um, we didn't have a car or no central heating or any of that. So I just remember feeling very restricted. For, like I feel, obviously feeling broke as shit, but I felt like even at a young age, I felt like I had no options to do anything. And my mum had no options to do anything because of the finances. So I, I always wanted to be financially free, always. I mean, I know everyone says that cliche style, but like my personality, when I'm obsessed with something, that, that that's all I'm I'm going to drive towards. And that was just a huge, a huge motivation for me my whole life to make sure I was financially free. So anyway, I started, long story short, I started a blog um, in 2010 and I knew people were making a lot of money from blogs. And I ended up making two or three million dollars from my blog um, over like a kind of 10, 12 year period. And uh, it's still picking over nicely today. And um, then I use that money, obviously, to help my mom out. And she spends her winters now in Thailand with me here. And yeah, and I've, I've used it to change my life. I've built a big, nice house here in the north of Thailand. I use it to climb Everest, to go to the South Pole and North Pole and spent a big chunk of it doing a big 11 year journey to every country in the world. Um, 
but that anyway that's how i afford it from my blog making money from the blog johnny for those of us that don't blog what how does one make money from a blog is that advertising or something yeah i mean it's obviously i could talk about that for 24 hours but very like layman's terms advertising yes that's basically the answer yeah and i'm fascinated about everest i would say i always tell people i've achieved all my dreams you've traveled to every country on the planet please i've traveled to half of them <laughs> but i still would like to climb everest so i guess i haven't achieved all my dreams folks but i'll be good to have one still isn't it yeah i mean what i'm saying is if i pop my clogs now i think it's been a life a life well spent you know i've got no no regrets whatsoever when so when you're up there on the high mountain first of all were, were you worried about getting a, a stomach infection it's funny that you know because it's quite a common thing a lot of people obviously there's lots of deaths from falling down crevasses and avalanches and falling off the mountain but in terms of failure getting sick is probably the number one cause of the failure more so than these dramatic deaths that you read about a lot of people fail like your mate like you get sick and no i because i did that 11 or 12 years every country in the world and i did it on a like absolute shoestring budget as my as i learned how to make money online so i've been like sleeping in bus stations and ports in bloody central african republic and congo for a decade but like i've been sick so many times when I, when I first set out for that every country thing, and now like I never ever get sick. I've, I've ingested every African, Latin American, European disease imaginable, and I live in Thailand eating street food and all that. And honestly, all this, I never get sick no matter what happens. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, I got sick the first day of the marathon. E even before we still had two days before we started running. And that's what, that's what happened to my mate, and that's how he dropped out. Mm. Yeah. Were you? Was it something that you were thinking about when you were doing it, like in the lead up to it and everything? Like, oh, I hope we don't get sick. Yeah i I thought the hotter it is when we do it, the more chance of catching a you know a stomach parasite or a, or a fo fo uh, it's, it, let's call it a foreign amoeba, isn't it? You know, that's stuff that we're not used to in the UK, and and you eat the. You, you eat two Bedouin meals or bur the Berbers cook you meals for the first two nights and it's bloody delicious. It's like a banquet in a, in a big tent and you're never going to say no to that, you know? Well, not if you're like me, but then of course, and they give you this tea and you see them actually touching like the ring of the cup with their fingers, which I don't care about. But what I do know is that the bacteria their stomachs are used to Bearing in mind you're in a country that probably what you know wipe the bum with that the the hand again something I I couldn't give a damn about because as you know and I know that's what you do in half half the world you do then wash your hand folks I should say you don't walk around with a big brown stain on your hand all day so I was conscious of it but the next morning after the very first and I'm I'm running to these kind of improvised toilets that, and and. And it's all just coming out and you get that horrible smell of it. Like you can just tell something's in your stomach is so alien and wrong. And the good thing is I could throw most, most of my rations away. <laughs> you still got to keep a certain calorie a day, but when it comes to eating, I'll just throw it in the bin. Um, I got by on like uh, drinking muesli, you know, Alpen out of a bag in the morning um and eating i had these thousand calorie um rehydrated ration packs and i was just throwing three quarters of them away so but like i say you know you don't complain just get you know uh, it, it wasn't nice to be that ill right from the start but sure you know, yeah but what can you do yeah so on the high mountain then did you feel any discomfort from uh, the lack of air up there? This kind of thing. Yeah, I've I've been climbing. I'm not. I don't come from a mountain climbing background. You know, I'm a working class kid. But oh, since I finished my countries and I was trying to do this seven summit stuff, um, I've been obviously on, on a fair few high mountains over the last four or five years. But I've never used oxygen before because I've never been above eight thousand meters until Everest. And I think people think, and maybe even me, maybe I thought this 
until a couple of months ago when I was on the mountain, uh, like wearing that oxygen mask, it doesn't, it's not like a scuba system with oxygen. You know, it only adds like a tiny percentage to, to what you have. So like when you're at 8,800 meters at the summit of Everest, with the oxygen mask, it makes it the equivalent of like, let's say 8,000 meters or 8,300 meters. So there's still all oxygen, just slightly more, you know what I mean? So yeah, it was really tough to be honest. And I'm quite a claustrophobic guy. And like, I've only done scuba once actually in my life and just hung over in Australia one time and I had like a panic attack. I was like, get this fucking thing off me. And I've never done it since. I hate the thought of having masks on me and all that. So actually, when when we were climbing, Everest takes about two months or fifty to seven weeks, fifty days, and uh, I knew that once we went above seven thousand meters, that people would be using oxygen. Uh, so I've been I had been dreading that the whole time. I knew that when I was putting that mask on, I was going to hate having it on, especially when you're like, I, I know you're going slow on Everest because there's very little oxygen, but it feels like you're running because you're so tired and there's not enough oxygen. So I knew I'd be breathing heavy and I'd have this thing stuck on my face and. The first day we got given the, the oxygen, then I didn't wear it. I did the whole day without it when everyone else was wearing it because I was so like I was so scared of, of putting it on. And then eventually you get so high that your choice is like not being able to breathe enough or being able to breathe just about enough, but having a horrible mask on your face. And the set the latter option is marginally better than the, the first option. So eventually you have to crack. We have to sleep with it on and everything. So it's pretty tough. And then obviously, as you go higher, the oxygen, you've only got so much oxygen that you can, that, that feeds into your mask. So as you get higher, it still becomes progressively harder. Like I say, people sitting at home might think you put this oxygen mask on and it's being at sea level. It's not. It's, mm. it's, it's brutal. So every step you take, like, it's, I, I run a lot of ultras. And when, when you're above 8,000, or certainly on summit day, it, the summit day just takes like 12 hours or whatever, right? Something like that. Up and down, maybe 16 hours. So it's quite a long day and it's freezing and scary and people are dying. And it's pretty traumatic. And you only go like from base camp. No, sorry, from camp four, which is high camp to summit. It's only two kilometers. Like what's like a mile and a bit. And it takes, and you're, and these are the fittest people in the world. I'm the fittest I've ever been in my life. And it's taken me 12 hours to do two bloody kilometers honestly mad so you do one step and then you, you might have to wait two or three minutes to recover mm. until you do the next step and the first 30 seconds after each step feels like you're gonna die you're like <clears throat> and there's just not enough oxygen so it's pretty awful and as you're going out it's really steep as well <laughs> and as you're going up like you might see like a nice it's steep as hell but consistent gradient and then there might be like a set of rocks that you actually have to climb over and all you're thinking is like, oh, fuck, when I get to those rocks, I'm actually going to have to climb a bit and actually exert myself. And I'm going to be wrecked for 10 minutes after. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. But I'm talking about when I say rocks, it might be something that you would just jump on a boulder to another boulder if you're on the beach. You know what I mean? Like it's nothing. But up there, you're looking at it like, oh, no, in, in an hour, I'm going to get there. and It's going to be brutal. And it, it's so mad. And there's and you just feel like you're never getting enough oxygen, of course. And and then when you're so exhausted, you want to breathe more and it's just not available. So yeah, it's constantly very claustrophobic and you just have to try, or I just have to try to stay calm and think just can I physically put one foot in front of the other? Yes, okay, just do that until you get to the bloody top and then get, get the fuck off as quick as you can. <laughs> Another um, ex-Marine chap summited this season, chap called Aldo Kane. He's done a, a lot of work on TV and he's... um friends with a few friends of mine and he went up with uh nims dies expedition yeah. um nims being the guy what did he do all the world's 14 highest peaks in six months knocking knocking six and a half years off the record and broken since but yeah yeah again nim nim's not an ex-marine but he was in the sbs which is the, the Marine Special Forces moved there from the Gurkhas. He came on the show after he'd done his his final summit, and he um, he predicted a weather window that nobody else had seen this year. And so his guys went up. I I, I I've only seen the summit pictures of, the, of Aldo and his Sherpa, but they said they had it all to themselves up there. There was the, 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 there was no Nims, one on. Nims has got a. Interesting reputation on the mountain. Let's say that. 
and they follow the rope fixing team, which is quite frowned upon. But he's Nepal's golden boy at the moment, so no one will tell him not to do it. Yeah. Oh, I see. He. I mean, he likes to leg it up the mountain, doesn't he? He. 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 He yeah. doesn't. I mean, he's not a guy that would want to queue. No, and wouldn't queue. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 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 let's give him credit. He saved. He has saved a fair few lives from reading his uh, book. And he's a beast. Mm. Like regardless of what people on the mountain think of him. Uh, he's a beast, yeah, and and he and he does. He has rescued people. It's it's absolutely true. But if I was to use an operator, I feel a moral obligation to be honest and say I wouldn't use Nims as operator. Let's yeah. just leave. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> yeah, his 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 guys. Um, they they summited Everest, and within twenty four hours, they were at the top of Lotsey taking yeah. photos of every um um if you think most people would just dream to get up everest and they they then they right let's get down a pub <laughs> let's get back to Kathmandu. we had two two, two people out of my group of four who had paid to do lots a right after as well and once they got up everest because high camp's almost the same lots of high camp and everest high camp's almost the same so but by the time you've done like you're on day 47 or 50 or whatever when you have your summit attempt at everest so on day 48, for example, then you would come down the mountain, but you could also just go up lots of it's right there. So only another six or eight hours extra. But but you're knackered. It's six or eight hours of climbing a bloody mountain at 8,000 meters after just doing spending 16 hours doing Everest. But what happened with our two was like, they were strong climbers too, but they were just like, I don't care. I've climbed Everest, get me off the mountain. So they just burned 15 grand extra and left. For me, this is my whole life. I'm jumping from this to the next thing to the next thing, like multiple times per year. So I very much appreciate my time at home because it'll only be another week or two until I'm doing something horrific again. <laughs> um, whereas a lot of people who do things like Everest and MDS, often that will be the biggest thing they ever do in their life. And they might have been working up to it for years and it'll be another set of years until they do something else. And to be honest, if people feel unfulfilled by doing that there's nothing to stop them doing it you don't need to spend money and fly to morocco like i say you can put a you can put a pair of sneakers on and run 400 kilometers yes you know what i mean there's nothing stopping you yeah oh yeah exactly i mean for the seven thousand pounds that it cost that's five 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 to get in and two thousand for kit and traveling and medicals and and you know i bought three pairs of trainers just to get one that i i thought right i think these fit the yeah. others, yeah. Anyway, what brand uh, did you? Uh, oh, I learned a lot about footwear this time. Yeah, I went in the end. I went from, um, oh, bear with me a sec. Great. I did. I, I use Salomon. Ah, okay. I don't think I can use Salomon because I have, I have what I would call normal feet. However, I would say normal feet are wide okay. and all these other brands are pointy. So Brooks, right? I, I once did 200 miles um, uh, in a week for a charity event and I wore Brooks. I wore those double thickness, double skin socks that do prevent blisters so long as the shoes are wide enough, right? So on, on that, I was running in the winter um and my feet were fine i literally ran 200 miles without one single issue whatsoever so i bought brooks for this one and the problem was uh i'd been wearing hocker you know that's my preferred brand. I, I always i i like to go barefoot right but what happened was i was running barefoot up to like 11 miles around the streets of my city and at my age, you just can't get away from it's doing that to your spine, no matter how you try and plant your foot. And that was what triggered my first uh, ruptured disc. So then I went completely the opposite. The first time I put a pair of hockers on and I went out, I beat my personal best because uh, I, I could just I could just run so much faster in these pair of ult proper ultra shoes and, and now i use those nike vaporflies those pricey ones and it's like it's heaven 
Mm. It's hell. Anything over like 20 miles, having the proper shoes is just an absolute game changer. Mm. And the difference between paying like 40 quid and 140 quid is massive. I went for hocker. I even got my Brooks with the, you know, the Velcro around to put the gaiters on. That was, you know, the Brooks are 140 quid. Velcro's another 70 quid. They're uh, still sat in the bedroom, haven't been used. Because uh, um, I put them on and compared to the Hockers, it was just, they felt so hot, you know, so much harder. So I bought another pair of Hockers. I bought half a size bigger because I didn't want to go too silly and i got extra extra wide and do you know what not wide not wide enough for my feet take them all your feet off. use that zinc oxide tape to take I've, your- I've never done that and i don't think you need to do it i think the reason that people do end up doing that is that the shoes always push your little toes in uh you you know it's like because you live in thailand when you see indigenous people their toes are like that. They've got space between them all. You know, like, like like when I worked in Mozambique, my little toes are literally almost hooked hooked over the second toe in because shoes, the shoes I've worn all my life, um, shoes are pointed. Why are shoes pointed when your feet are shaped like pasties? It doesn't really... I live my life in flip-flops, so I don't have that issue. <laughs> well... Here's the thing. After I'd done the marathon in those extra, extra wide shoes, I couldn't put my old shoes on because my feet had spread out the way they should be. <laughs> it was it. I had to buy like a whole size bigger to get. Um, sorry, folks. But it, it, I, I hope people find the runners out there at least find this fascinating. But one chap in my tent said, Chris, go ultra. The yeah. brand ultra. I, I'd never, and when he showed me, he held them up like that, and they looked like bear's feet. They were literally the, you know, symmetrical. These big scoopy shoes, and I'm like, yeah, that's what my feet needed. Um, but I had a load of blisters and stuff, and a lot of the lads were spending, and I, I there is a big part of me thinks just leave them alone and keep running. It's good to suffer. We're getting older now, but it's, it's so important to go through that lesson of suffering on a regular basis. Mm. I mean, and how, how good does a beer taste or a kiss with your missus or sitting on your sofa after you've suffered and after you know what deep suffering, physical suffering is? And for sure, I find so much more joy in my life because I suffer so regularly. <laughs> so you've rode the Atlantic. Uh, yeah. Okay, that that's the next project that I'm trying to get um, online because I've got a mate that's got a boat. Um, he actually talk is talking about coming with me. Hello, Brucey, if you ever get to watch us. That's half the problem is like a lot of these things. The boat is very very expensive. They're like forty grand, like fifty grand US maybe. Um, so often when people dream of rowing across an ocean and then they find out the price of the boat. The dream never gets gets off, you know what I mean? Because it's so expensive. Yeah. And also, there's a cliche in the rowing in the ocean rowing uh, community that's saying that like ninety nine percent of the of the battle is getting to the starting point rather Absolutely. than the actual experience because it's so hard to organize. Absolutely, all the, all the technology you need on the boat, and then the actual boat itself and the cost of it all is it's, it's expensive. Yeah, it's a pretty wild experience. Did you go solo, Johnny, or were you in a team? I did it with three guys who had never met before, and we just freestyled it in a boat, completely unsupported. Not part of any, not part of the Talisker Challenge or anything. It was genuinely, hundred percent unsupported. Just our boat dotted across the ocean, which is quite scary. I, mean, I don't come from that again. I don't come from a background that of people who go on boats. I've never been on a rowboat, sailboat, or anything in my life. And when I was signed up for it, I just went to a gym here in Thailand and used the rowing machine. You know, like the gym rowing machine for like six hours a day and that was my training so then when i got on the boat i was like oh fucking hell this is a completely different like movement and everything to what i've been training on <laughs> did you have to learn seamanship and all that sort of stuff not really you do a few you do bits and bobs of health and safety but because ours was just literally completely unsupported like we had no insurance or anything so we didn't have to worry too much about that kind of stuff 
and the the boats are supposed to self right so it should be all right <laughs> i guess you have a rate uh, what do you ever uh, i don't even know we what sat, we had a sat phone sat phone so if you really get in trouble you can yeah you know, there's call the, the coast guard all the radium or something it's really expensive loads that the data is like two grand per gigabyte so but but if it's life and death you're happy enough to spend it and mm. um, we actually we got off to an awful start we left lanzarote uh did we, was it lanzarote anyway one of the canary islands just off the coast of africa and then we were going to row to antigua so across the old atlantic um and because the boat was a bit it was a bit fly by night the whole, whole setup because it was just four guys going and um our boat like broke in the first 24 hours when it got rescued by the spanish coast guard so then we got pulled into port of insurer or one of those other canary islands i'd never been to them before we had to get and i was and i actually thought that the the whole expedition was going to be over and we found a guy who had worked with fiberglass before we paid him for a week to just but like hot hot potch whatever the verb is to fix it together and then a week later off we went and then two months on the ocean 50 four days or something it took us did you enjoy it uh no it was the worst thing i've ever done in my life something like everest where you might die or like i did a mar i've done marathons at like the north pole and i've cycled from china to malaysia and obviously all every country thing i've been in loads of scary situations and i've been arrested in like 10 countries and all this and obviously everest is the chance of dying and fell in this volcano once and nearly died and all that kind of stuff I'm, i can get my head around and but i found the claustrophobia and the lack of personal space and the duration really tough mentally to deal with. Physically, I was really strong. I trained really hard for it. But mentally, I found it really tough because you're in a cabin like this. And the way I describe it to people is that like you do two, well, you do two hours rowing and two hours resting every four hours all through the night, 24 hours a day for two months, right? So you're in the middle of the night. You only, so you're sleeping like 30 minute windows. So you're really sleep deprived. And again, I've done lots of long distance running and stuff. So I'm used to that. But the when you're resting, you're like you're fit, you're like this, and there's a guy right beside you. So you're almost touching shoulders. You are touching shoulders. So you're never, ever, ever alone, not even for 10 seconds and for two months. And I I like to process my thoughts and like I'm like an extroverted introvert, you know, like I need my space. I need to shut the door and process what I'm thinking and my emotions. And I found it very difficult to deal with the reality that it, for the next two months, I'm going to be physically touching another guy with no escape ever. And, and, I, and it's roasting hot as well. And I find it mentally really challenging. Wow. And there being no escape. The boat that we've, that well, they, the boys um, took me out on a boat and there were all these guys are ex-Marines and they they had a cabin at both ends. Yeah. So you can have one yeah. person. No, every, most most ocean rowing boats have that, mate. But, but it's not a cabin, it's a storage normally, unless it's different, but um, and all your food's in there. It's completely full of your food normally when oh, you're actually under Shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> food to the brim with your food and then obviously uh, you... Go. Yeah, that shows you how much I know about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's much, you know, like when I was doing it the first time, because I'm not a good swimmer or anything like that, I was quite happy to do it in a group of four. And I assumed that doing it solo would be the hardest, doing it in a two would be slightly easier, doing it in a four would be easier still. And now, retrospectively, with the experience of rowing the Atlantic, doing it in a two is the easiest by a mile. And then doing it by Doing it solo is easier than, and then four is actually the hardest if you've got the same issues as I have. But doing mm -hmm. it in a two is quite nice because you row while your mate rests and then he rests on his own. He can recharge as much as he wants. You know what I mean? And then you swap and I, that would be much better. And again, doing it solo would also be okay. I would prefer, be scary, of course, being in the middle of the ocean and big waves and getting flipped around and all that. But at least you'd be able to decompress. Even when you're actually rowing, you'd be decompressing, you know? mentally i mean not physically uh so i actually thought four like if i was ever to do something like that again i wouldn't do it in a four i don't know how many people you're thinking about doing it with i think we'd be a four yeah but i can see a lot of people do the foursome and then they go on to do the crossing on their own so it, there's definitely something in what you're saying it's yeah. certainly the confidence the confidence as well i'm actually organizing 
when I because I'm trying to be the first person in history to do every country seven summits in North Pole, South Pole. I'm going to finish in December when I'm going off to the South Pole on December 27th. And um, when I finish, my, my kind of semi-retirement goal is I want to create four like epic events like the Marathon de Sable, um, and have and try to encourage normal people to come and do this wild shit. And I have this brilliant idea that I'm going to do. I'm going to start it next winter called the Triathlon instead of Triathlon because obviously I'm based here. And the Golden Triangle at the north of Thailand is where Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand meet near China. And, and I want to organize an event where you it starts there. You cycle a thousand kilometers to Bangkok, then you take an ocean rowing boat from Bangkok to Koh Samui, the most famous island. That's another thousand kilometers, and then there's a 55 kilometer ring road around Samui, so ultra marathon to finish. And I want to do this like it's a big yearly event. Oh, it sounds awesome. Yeah, you say cool. golden triangle. I was thinking it might mean another event then, but snort a line of coke, inject some opium. <laughs> Sorry, I folks. Think, I don't think you'd be fit for a 1,000K cycle, 1,000K <laughs> row after that. And then say, but the cycle. <laughs> <laughs> How have you managed? Uh, you've traveled all these countries. One thing I'll say, because you know obviously having traveled pretty extensively myself the old kind of uh drug tourism thing is it, it's a big old thing on that circuit isn't it you know yeah well it depends when you're in bolivia and colombia like i spent a few months in colombia studying spanish and that's obviously a wild place cocaine for bloody three dollars a gram and, and in bolivia even less so it's certainly rampant <laughs> mm. I just wanted to ask, how did you, how have you kept on top of that sort of? Yeah, um, well, well, you know, I, so I, like I said, I'm really like a type A personality. So I was on this massive goal to do every country. So a lot of my fitness stuff fell by the wayside from like, I'm 39 now and finished when I was what, 34, I think. So from like 23 to 34, I was doing every country. And I was constant. I, I just I traveled nine, 10 months a year, two nights here, three nights here, one night there for like 12 years straight. It's quite brutal. Uh, cool but brutal and um uh, yeah sometimes i'll get really out of shape women and booze and drugs i'll get really out of shape and like you know you always think it's the answer like oh I'm, like when you're stressed and then women alcohol drugs da, 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 da. and then actually that makes you more stressed more down you know what i mean and then you snap out of it and then but it's very it's, especially being alone in, in scary countries for months and years on end yeah sometimes i would fall by the wayside of course mm. But now yeah. I'm a bit older, a bit wiser, like I'm in fitness and all this ultra like adventure stuff's a big part of my life. So I'm more on the straight and narrow these days. Growing up, not being able to do anything like with my family financially to be having the opportunities to to travel to these extreme places. And also I did a lot of overlanding. Like I went from Cape Town to Cairo by public transport and Cape Town to Casablanca by public transport. I went from Alaska to argentina by public transport i went from bangkok to belfast by public transport so i did most of it over land over like each time each time trip like that would be a year um so you've got no choice but to keep moving and you're also in really obscure places if you're doing it over land as well you're not just in an obscure country you're in an obscure place in an obscure country as you overland and it just felt like made me feel really alive you know like when you're in trying to find out how to get the next bus from some village in Uzbekistan to cross the border into bloody uh, Tajikistan or whatever, you know, it's cool. I felt very grateful to be in those places. And also like people looking at you like they've never seen some pasty white Irishman before. It was a, it was a wild decade. What was, could you give us an idea of your most dangerous, most dangerous yeah. moments? I mean, many, like I said, I've been imprisoned in so many countries, but I was when I was nearly finished my countries. I was I'd visited 194, so I had three left, and I was saving Norway for a big celebration at the end, a safe, easy one for my mates and family to come and celebrate with me. And I tried and failed to go to Yemen. This was during like I know Yemen sadly still at war, but about five years ago, it was in, the Saudi Iran thing was even worse, and Yemen was getting devastated. And I had tried and failed to get into Yemen five or six times, and. The fifth or sixth time, the fifth or sixth final time, I actually went to this city in the south of Oman called Salala with these rich people who were, all, who were also trying to get to, to Yemen and they chartered a plane and let me on it. And we were in the air and finally I was going to get to Yemen. Like I'd been trying for over a year 
and the Saudi jets turned us over in the middle of the, the journey and brought us back to Oman. I was like, fuck, I'm actually never going to get in this country. And everyone left. And I just stayed in Salalah. And I said, and they're like, well, we're all leaving. I'm like, I'm not leaving Oman until I get to fucking Yemen. Yeah. And in the end, I ended up hitchhiking on this Indian cargo ship through the, Somal- through the Somalian Sea to get to, to Socotra, an island that belongs to to Yemen. And it was... Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I'm just looking at the map as you're speaking. I see it. Um, yeah, and I spent four days in this cargo ship. Um right off the coast of Somalia with all the pirates like ravaging the place and pretty wild. One, I was also in Liberia during the Ebola crisis and I was, I was trying to overland, from, like I say, from Cape Town to Casablanca, up the whole west coast of Africa. And I paid a smuggler to bring me into, um, from Ivory Coast into Liberia and I got arrested and I bribed the police chief to let me out and a different smuggler came and got me and offered me a different route and then I tried that and I got arrested and brought back to the same station and spent like time in the prison there I've been in so many wild places that people would never think to visit unless you're doing these overland trips I still think in this day and age like overland is the way to do it and I also think like the continent of Africa in an era like where everyone's in bloody Bali taking photographs of themselves in a bikini thinking that that's travel. There's still many amazing destinations that haven't been ruined by mass tourism in the continent of Africa, especially in interior Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, still offers that. Mm. But it takes a lot of balls, you know? So there's like there's the cost there too. Yeah, that was like Mozambique. Jesus, God, you get on some of these idyllic beaches and I, I, I arbitrarily 30 miles that way, you're not going to... Sp- well, no, 200 miles that way, you're not going to see any kind of, certainly no Western commercialism. There might be the odd fishing village that might have a restaurant, but you just, you're on this beautiful beach and there's just one guy, you know, chucking his fishing nets in. Well, you know, I'm preaching the choir, aren't I? I got an expedition ship to Antarctica and it, I'll be honest, I kind of did it more for like a tick in the box because I've seen six continents and I thought, there's no point dying and not seeing seven, is there? And it really was a little bit like I took it for granted. It cost a, it, it, it cost a lot of money because I had to buy all the scuba diving equipment and specialist equipment you need down there and specialist training. Um, but the second we set sail from Ushuaia and I met this wonderful Aussie chap and a, a Russian chap in my share in a cabin, I just suddenly realized this this is the best trip I've ever done. It was utterly incredible. You look out your porthole in the morning and there's an iceberg floating by. It's like the size of Belgium. Yeah. And and gosh, it it was just incredible, but um how did you get I know I know you've been there twice or, or yeah. you're going you're going to go again. Yeah, so I've also been in one of those expedition boats from Ushuaia, but this time I'm going to the South Pole. Like, to, uh, really, I'm, I'm to climb the highest mountain in in, South, in Antarctica as well. It's called Vitsanasit. So I'll be there for five, six, seven weeks or whatever in the cold in the in the interior of of Antarctica. Because with that that boat, I also thought it was pretty cool. But you only really get to the the peninsula, the Antarctica Peninsula. Um, but it's just so expensive. Like as you say, that boat, those boats are like ten grand or whatever. And then to get to go deeper, it just gets exponentially more expensive. So I understand why people don't go to the interior, but I want to be the first person to do this stuff, right? So I've got to Well, we have no doubt you will. Um, but I say to put I mean, we we went down as far as the polar circle. I don't know what degree um latitude that is or is it longitude i never know which one's which um and so what am i saying so there's me forget the scuba diving but for the actual passage i think it was about five thousand pounds which company quark uh it was called ocean wide expeditions i Ah, believe they were called um it was it was an interesting expedition the first our first scuba dive 
one of our dive buddies drowned, which was just, you know, it's like you say, isn't it? It's, you know, you, you, it, you, it, you got to, there were people that clearly weren't prepared to dive in, 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 in Antarctica, basically. Um, um but I encourage a lot of people because there's all this talk of uh, flat earth at the moment. Um, and I say to these people, like, if you believe it's just an ice wall, if you're going to spend your whole life believing that, why don't you just go get to a Schweier? You could probably get there a cheap flight for 400 quid. You can walk into a travel agent and ask for a, a cancellation space on an expedition ship where someone's cancelled. And there were people on my expedition that had paid like 1600 quid for their passage, you know? So for two grand, you get down there and folks, the first thing you step ashore on is rocks. <laughs> it's a continent, you know, it's, 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 sorry, I'm not trying to upset anyone here. Um, it, it, and it, it, and, and all the stories and the history that you you get as as they do lectures all the way down there and you meet all these fascinating explorers and that and it it just gives you a, a bit of perspective on life can we say that when I see people arguing on the internet like they clearly haven't got and I just wouldn't put my whole like I'm a, 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 a well I call myself friends with um serrano fines you know he very when i ran the length of the country for um to raise awareness of veterans issues he sent me a signed copy of one of his books and um i went to see him in when he came to speak down in the southwest and and i contacted him recently about this issue because do you are you familiar he's with his trans globe expedition the one that you went long ways instead of around the ways. Yeah, long yeah. ways all the way around the planet. Actually, bought they fundraised to buy a ship to drop them at one side of Antarctica, so they crossed it, picked them up the others. And a lot of people aren't aware that these sort of you know that they did this. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I wanted to come on the show and talk about it, but he laughed at me when I said, "Do you know about FE?" He was like, "What?" I said, it's this massive movement that, that folks have got to be careful what I say, because it's actually, this is now taboo to talk about on certain platforms. Um, and I said, yeah, there's a massive movement in the world that believe that the certain planet is shaped, you know, like, and he was like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> of, all the people, of all the people to say it to, though, the, the one guy who can certainly tell you for sure yeah. that it's not I, 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 I'll be honest. I've said this to two people that I've known that have been around the, um, certainly crossed that. I know two people that have crossed all the way across Antarctica, you know, from, from, uh, uh, exclude one of them, excluding the ice shelves, but obviously Saran's done the ice shelves as well. And, uh, I might be, getting my expletives mixed up between explorers if I, I think surrounds a little bit more refined, but <laughs> he was just like nonsense. <laughs> like, no, honestly. Oh, well, I, I, I said, will you come on the show? He said, no. I said, is there anything, anything you can say that I could say to people that are going to spend their whole lives believing in this theory? And I, I don't tell people what to believe. I'm just saying this is, let me tell you, man, I can tell you, I can also guarantee I rode from Africa to the Americas and my skipper on that boat has rode from the Americas to Australia. So it's been proven many a times. Like there's nothing to stop someone rowing from uh, Africa or Europe to the Americas and then manually crossing the continent and then rowing again on the other side. Mm. It, no one's done that in one unbroken loop, but many people have done it in sections. So, I mean, that ship has sailed quite literally. Yeah, it's a funny one. Well, ah, this, this is your podcast. Let's not talk about that. But it is a funny one. The, the, the rhetoric that you see online, you can see how people believe it. And it's kind of, 
when you come up with the, a, a theory like this, then it's quite easy to make the evidence seem seem to support it. The world's such a beautiful place, and with with the internet now has basically removed everyone's excuse as to why they failed in their goals and their dreams. Right? Anyone can make money online. Anyone can access ev- unlimited uh, education online. And we all start as children with dreams to do to live this big, these big grand lives full of adventure and success. And lots of people reach 50, 60, 70 years old and they've done nothing with their life. And they find some esoteric plan that they can cling to where they find own, like ownership and and uh, camaraderie. And that's their way of 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 feeling fulfilled. Yes. And it's, and it's sad. But if it if it if it gives them some kind of peace, whatever. Good luck to them. Well, yeah, yeah. I I just say you know, I just don't understand if you're that convinced and that upset and angry about it, and you feel that there's a why don't you just get together with a bunch of these, do a crowdfunder, and get a plane to you know. There's air bases on Antarctica, aren't they? You know, there's airstrips, and and they're expensive, folks. Not not going to say they're not, but you you could hop, um, you could plan a hop across the continent, and then you'd be like, right, okay, now I can go on and live my life and not. But they don't really want to do that, though, do they? Because they have the fear, of course, that they're going to be disproved. Well, I guess yeah, that's a that's that's a good point. And then they pin their colours to the mast, and they're going to feel. Like, like morons. <laughs> Why would they risk that? Let them stay in their little echo chamber and have their little meetups and and pretend that they're intellectually superior. I mean, that, that's a much more preferable situation for them to find themselves in than being faced with the reality that they're wrong. I can see as a global traveller that <laughs> you've come across this before. I'm the same. I say, folks, I've sat on the bit. You sit on the beach in Mozambique, and literally within half an hour, you've seen. You know, God knows how many satellites tracking over. You know, um, you don't know who made them. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. So, Johnny, last question then is something I get asked a lot. What, what's been your favourite place? I'm guessing Thailand because that's where you're sat now. Yeah, it's different though, isn't it? It's about, it's like it's a very difficult question to answer because does it mean the diff- like your favorite place to visit, your favorite place to live? That I personally think the best place in the world to live is is Chiang Mai, which is the, the kind of capital of of Thailand's north, and that's where where I've come and built my house. Like when I was broke, when I was a, when I came out of uni, I came and taught English in the north of Thailand for a year. And then I went off to continue this every country in the world thing. And then I started my blog and then I started making money again. And then once I was making money online, I was free to live anywhere. And I'd been to every country and I've chosen to to be in the north of Thailand. So, I mean, the proof's in the pudding from my personal beliefs. It's lovely climate, warm culture, great cost of living, very accessible. You're only 45 minutes flight from Bangkok, 20 quid flight from Bangkok, and then you can go anywhere. I personally think it's, and it's, it's huge. There's a huge digital nomad, like online working scene here. Um, where like th- there's thousands and thousands of foreigners who who are working in online businesses, so it's got a nice entrepreneurial side, full of coffee shops and cool bars. I love it here. Oh, I'm so pleased for you, J- Johnny. Have you got children at all? No, but I got married about eighteen months ago, and we're going to hopefully have kids next year. Okay. Do you think you'll tame things down a bit then, or or? or- you're I not mean, gonna. You can't answer that, mate, because you haven't had them yet. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, I'm not going to do nine months away every year like I normally do. I won't do that, but I'll still be doing like when I get frustrated about or bored of of normal life. Like I'll still fly to New York and cycle to San Francisco. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll, I've created a life where I've got the freedom to do that. I don't want to suddenly restrict myself. And hopefully, as long as business ticks over nicely, I can bring my family for those kind of stuff or certainly at the beginning and the end. Let's see. I'm, I would imagine I'll always spend a month or two away each year doing cool stuff. And I run a lot of trips, both with, with a charity that I own and and um, a lot of tourism to like obscure places through my blog. So um, I'll continue to do that. Like in September, next two or three months, I'm, I've got a load of trips to 
Iraq, Turkmenistan, Mali. I'm doing a big charity cycle across Jordan and raise money for Parkinson's with my mom and, and 20 people. And I'll always do that kind of stuff. Keeps me alive. This chat, mate, it's been fascinating. Thank you, Johnny. Um, it's uh, inspirational, you could say. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Wonderful stuff. You know, you're such a nice chap and you've got out there and you smashed a few goals and um yeah be uh, be be incredibly proud take don't forget always to take time out and and reflect on what you've achieved because you know our mind that's, is always on the next challenge isn't it that's the curse isn't it yes yes to our friends at home hope you found that as utterly fascinating as i have um if you could like and subscribe much love we'll see you next time friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media username chris thrall instagram chris thank you